I love like a good old fashioned just in time rescue. That's, that's my favorite movie trope. You know, sometimes you can watch different movies and it feels like, oh, I've seen this before. Like, I've seen the same exact thing. My favorite movie trope is that just-in-time rescue. And I realized that when I was watching one of my favorite movies, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. 2002, straight masterpiece. And what has just happened right now in this room, in case you're curious, is about 10, 15% of y'all are nerds with me, and you're actually really happy about this. And there's a lot of y'all who are way cooler than me growing up, and you don't care about any of this. And I understand But the fact of the matter is, I have a microphone, so I'm going to make you hate me for a couple minutes. So, imagine this with me. My favorite scene in this movie is the Battle of Helm's Deep, all right? So there's a scene, the good guys, they're in this fortress. They are surrounded by the bad guys, the orcs, in case you were curious. And uh, death is certain. Like, they're beating down the door. They know there's no way they're making it through this. And so, in what is a horrible military strategy, but a great scene in a movie... They get on their horses in the middle of the castle, get, they get their swords, and they ride out to meet the enemy, knowing they're going to die. And then, as they do, they remember the words of Gandalf. Now, even if you're not a movie, you know who Gandalf is. He's been in a whole lot of memes. That's the, you shall not pass. That guy, right? That's Gandalf. It's like Dumbledore, but cooler. Harry Potter nerds, am I right? Uh, so, they remember Gandalf, and they remember that he said, at dawn, on the fifth day, look to the east. And as they're riding out, it is dawn. On the fifth day, and they look to the east, and they see the sun, and then they see this rider dressed in white on a white horse showing up with an army that saves the day, and it just makes this little nerd happy. I just love it. It's just like just in time. And it's it's that just in time part that I love, because it's not just in Lord of the Rings, as great as that is. It's also in Saving Private Ryan, right? We did a nerd movie. We did one for me. Now we do one for you. All right? In Saving Private Ryan, there's this scene at the end of the movie where Captain Miller he's wounded, all he's got is a pistol, and he sees this German tank approaching him. So he takes his pistol and he shoots the tank, pop, but nothing happens because it's a tank. And he shoots it again and pop, and nothing happens because it's a tank. And then pop, and then boom, and then the tank blows up, and then he looks to the sky and he sees that the Allied Air Forces shows up just in time to provide rescue, and now there's hope. It's also, and I've discovered this recently, in every Transformers movie, not the first one, the best one, the only good one, but actually every Transformers movie is the exact same movie, all right? And I'm not going to tell you there are good movies because they're, they're not, but they are all the same, and I love the just-in-time. Here's the thing. With every Transformers movie, here's how this goes. You have a human. They switch them out, but you have a human who then befriends Bumblebee and then learns a life lesson from Optimus Prime. Sometimes they switch the order, but, you know, those two things happen. And then Bumblebee or Optimus Prime or both uh, are mad at the human and they leave, or they get kidnapped, or they die. And then, all hope is lost. Oh no, what will we do? Don't worry. Bumblebee then comes back, or back to life. Optimus Prime comes back, or back to life. Yay, just in time, rescue. Every single movie. Every single one. And then, you know, just mix it up. They add a dinosaur, and then they add, like, this robot gorilla. I haven't even seen this one, but I just described the new one to you. You're welcome. I saved you $7.50. It's all of them. But it's not just action movies and nerd movies. It's rom-coms, too. I was talking with a friend about this, and I think my favorite rom-com is The Proposal. We have the Sandra Bullock, who is the horrible Canadian boss who forces her assistant, the lovely Ryan Reynolds, to propose to her in a sham marriage so that she can stay in the country and will not be deported. And that goes really well with lots of comedy, lots of dancing. Uh, And then we have this moment where they fall in love, and to do the right thing, she comes clean, And so she's about to get deported. She's going to go to Canada, back to the great white north, till he shows up in the office with 24 hours left before she's deported and hits her with a, Margaret, marry me, because I'd like to date you. Aww. 
just in time, swoops in, saves the day. And then finally, we don't even have a poster for this one, we have every Hallmark movie where the hero with his or her small town charm saves not only the relationship, but also Christmas, just in time. (laughs) There's there's just something about that just-in-time rescue that I love. And that's actually something we're talking about today. See, we're in our series, Spoiler Alert, and we're talking about the book of Revelation. And we're talking about something called the second coming of Christ, which is this dramatic, larger-than-life, just-in-time rescue. All right, we, uh, we were doing some movie posters, so actually had a friend of mine use AI, mid-journey, to create a movie poster for Revelation 19, the idea of Jesus coming back and the second coming. So let's go ahead and throw that movie poster up. We will have a scene, I will picture, we'll talk about it, where Jesus comes back on a horse in white, he'll be dressed in white, and he'll come back just in time for rescue. If you're looking at that, you're thinking, wow, someone made that with just a couple lines of code and said, mid-journey, create this. Yeah, but if you're afraid of our future robot overlords, if we just say, create this without cape, this is our picture. <laughs> so we don't have to be afraid yet. Maybe someday, but not yet. But the truth is, there will be a day worthy of a dramatic movie poster where Jesus comes back. And he comes back in dramatic fashion, dressed in white on a white horse, and it's going to be incredible. Now, One of my least favorite movie tropes is when they start with something exciting and then they pause and go, hey, and uh, let me tell you how this happened. And then you go back. But yeah, that's what I'm doing to you guys now. Okay? So we'll get there. But let me tell you how we get here. Last week, Jerry Day was talking about justice and how God is a just God. And even if we personally want mercy, we also want there to be justice. And because God's perfect, his justice is perfect. And even if we don't understand it, it's fair. So there will be a time where God draws a line and says no more to the evil in the world, and he comes back to make it right. Jerry also introduced a timeline of kind of the end time events. So let's go ahead and let's throw that timeline up here, and then let's give a big caveat. See, there are some really smart, godly people that would agree with everything on here. There are some really smart, godly people who would say, well, I agree with the main points of this, but some of the details not so much. So just to be honest, this is mine and Adam's and Jerry's best understanding. You'll find smart people that love Jesus that might interpret some parts of Revelation a little differently. But to the best of our knowledge, this is what happens. And the points are all the same. So on our map, we have Christ's death, burial, resurrection. He goes back to be with God. And you are here. Okay? We're in the church age. Now, this map, by the way, is not drawn to scale. Okay? But we are here in the church age. And there will be a point in time when Jesus comes back in something called the rapture. All right? This is not in the book of Revelation, so we're not covering it in detail now. You can find about it in other parts of the New Testament where Jesus will come back, and those who are on earth that are followers of him will actually meet him in the air. We have this little nice loop here because he does not set foot on the earth, which is why we don't call it Christ's second coming. That's later. We'll get there. Jesus comes back, something called the rapture. that point, followers of Jesus on the earth are with Jesus. It only gets better from that point on for people who have chosen to follow Jesus. Less fun, we have something called the tribulation here on earth. All right? So followers of Jesus are now removed. And there is a seven-year period of time where God pours out his judgment and wrath on the world, but people have the opportunity to turn and follow him. So a horrible seven years dominated by the leadership of the beast, sometimes called the Antichrist, and the false prophet. All right? That's going on during this seven-year period of time. People will have the chance to turn and follow Jesus, and many of them will actually be killed for doing so because the world will be evil and it will be dominated by God's wrath and judgment as people are standing against him. But eventually, God says enough, no more. And that's where we get to Christ's second coming and a final battle, which is here. And this is that movie picture scene where Jesus comes back dressed in white on a white horse. It's actually described in Revelation 19. 
So John gets a vision of it. He gets to see some of it. And this is how it's described. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with an iron rod, and he'll release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And I love that passage. And here's one of the reasons I love it. So when we think about Jesus coming to earth, most of the time we think about when he was born. And he was actually born to die. He was born uh, in a manger. He, he came in the most humble means. He lived in, in a family that was poor. I mean, he, he lived, he worked as a carpenter. And then, even as the promised Messiah, he didn't lead a military revolution like people expected. But instead, he taught a small group of men a different way to live, a new way to worship God. And it wasn't what people expected. And then he went to Jerusalem but instead of coming in on a horse for war, he came in and he rode a donkey, showing that he came in peace. And then he carried his own cross through the city, and then he died on it. And in doing so, Jesus showed an incredible love and mercy and sacrifice, offering people a chance to follow him and spend forever with God. Like, he made that possible when he came in peace, when he came in humility. And even now, he's waiting. Like, the second coming hasn't happened yet because he's giving more people the chance to follow him. But even now... That same Jesus who came in incredible humility is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But when we see him at the second coming, what happens is he comes back with incredible power. He's full of love and full of power at the same time, right? It's not like there's this meek and mild Jesus and then there's this warrior king Jesus. No, it's the same person, right? Jesus is the same. We see a different side of him. We see the lamb and the lion. But we see Jesus as the lion here coming back full of power. And when he comes back, here's what happens. The beast and the false prophet lead people in a rebellion against him. So they gather an army to fight against Jesus. It's this dramatic scene, but here's where it's very different than those movies we mentioned earlier. See, in those movies, there's these fights, and it's like there's these two even forces. Or maybe the good guys are even like, man, they're outnumbered, and how are they going to win? But that's not how this final battle goes. Right? It's very different. Rock beats scissors, scissors beats paper, and Jesus doesn't lose. Like, it's not an even fight. It's a dramatic fight. It's a conclusion in some ways, but it's not an even fight. So what happens is just with a breath, Jesus completely, utterly destroys everyone that's gathered against him. These aren't just innocent bystanders, by the way. These are people that are gathered against Jesus, recognizing and rejecting him and standing against him. And Jesus allows us right now to reject him. We'll talk about that later. But he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And there's a moment where that is no longer an option. So people have had the chance to surrender to him or stand against him. And those that stand against him will be completely destroyed, including the beast and the false prophet who are leading them. So the beast and the false prophet, they're thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. The lake of fire, is it's, it's a picture. I mean, water doesn't burn, but it's this picture of something beyond our ability to fully comprehend. A place described as full of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's awful. It's everything that's bad in life, but worse. Like, we, I don't think we can fully comprehend it. Because if God provides everything that is good and God's not there, this is a place for those that have rejected God. I mean, it is awful. And that's where the beast and the false prophet go. 
So the beast and the false prophet are there. And then Satan, also called the dragon, is put in chains. I believe that's probably figurative. But he's placed in what's called a bottomless pit. So he's not in hell. We'll get back to that. Let's think about it as an awful timeout. And then Jesus establishes something called the millennial kingdom. Uh, the millennial kingdom. Like, is this the thing where people have avocado toast, milk milk lattes, and golden doodles, like lots of golden doodles. Is that? No. Uh, Millennial, yes, but not millennial kingdom. All right, let's throw our timeline back up. All right, so rapture, tribulation for seven years. Jesus comes back. There's a final battle. It's really final battle part one. We'll explain that in a bit. And we have the establishment of the millennial kingdom. It's called that because of millennium is a thousand years. So we believe that it lasts for a thousand years here on earth where Jesus is king. And those who have died following him, especially that were killed because of their love for Jesus during the tribulation, right? People who chose to follow Jesus during this period of time and then were killed for it, actually get to rule with Jesus for a thousand years, and the earth knows peace. And it's going to be incredible. And during that period of time, there will be generation after generation. And near the end of that thousand years, some people, even having experienced Jesus as king and seeing that, will be deceived by Satan, who is let loose from the bottomless pit. He'll deceive some of them, and then they'll rise up in rebellion against Jesus, who is king on earth during this time. And then we get the final battle, part two. Final battle, part two, is described in one verse. And it says, and they gathered around the holy city and fire fell from heaven and consumed them all. It was like a, all right, and then there's this dramatic moment and then it's over. Because it's not a fight between equal forces. And there is nothing, there is no one that can truly rival God. And so we have our final battle, part two, and then Satan is taken and he's thrown in hell forever. And if you're hearing that, when I read that, I, I kind of had two questions. One, like, why is Satan let out in the first place? And two, well, what's the point of that? And there's a couple reasons. One is that it fulfills some Old Testament prophecies. But another is this. I think this shows, maybe this is final proof, that even perfect circumstances can't produce a purely good heart. Like, that comes with God's grace. Even... Just as Adam and Eve got to know God and walk with him, even people who get to know Jesus as king and have the opportunity to walk with him here, some will still choose to reject him because our hearts are naturally broken. And so after that final battle, part two, where Satan is thrown in hell forever, we enter something called the final judgment. And this final judgment, we see a picture of a great white throne. We had AI make another movie poster, so let's go ahead, let's throw that one up. But we have this scene that occurs after the final battle, part two, called the great white throne judgment. And, like, yeah, I know, Jesus doesn't look like that. He's from the Middle East, so his skin color would be darker. And you know what? I don't know if these people look like that either, but that's not the point. Here's the point. There will be a great white throne that takes place at the final judgment. And that's described in Revelation 20. So let's go ahead. Let's throw up Revelation 20, um, starting in verse 11. So John's describing this final judgment. And he says, And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a lot. Let's break it down. So we see this great white throne, and either God or Jesus is on it. Maybe both, maybe just one. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that the judgments coming from it are faithful and true and perfect 
and fair and final. Like, there's no appeals process, right? At this point in time, the judgments are final. And it says that people are judged according to their deeds. Well, what that means is that based on how a person lived, and God then judges them. And the most important deed is what somebody did with Jesus. Did they choose to surrender to him and to follow him, or did they reject him, either intentionally or just by ignoring him? Because right now, people have the opportunity to surrender to Jesus and follow him, or right now, people have the opportunity to ignore him. But there comes a point in time where that's no longer an option. There's a point in time where either someone has chosen to surrender to Jesus, or they have rejected him, and then there is judgment based on that. Here's the thing. God created the world. As a creator, he has the authority to establish what's right and wrong, what he wants to happen. So he has the authority to establish a heaven and a hell. And here's the thing. God loves Jesus. I want you to think of the person you love most in this world. We do not hold a candle to how much God loves Jesus, right? I mean, think about all of history, all of creation, the end times, all of heaven, that is focused on Jesus. God loves Jesus. And in mercy and in patience and in love for us right now, we have the opportunity to put our trust in Jesus. There is a point in time, though, where God says enough is enough. And God loves Jesus so much that someone rejecting him is that big of a deal. Now, it's common, so I think we become desensitized to it, right? It's like, oh, you don't follow Jesus, cool. You live your life, I'll live mine. And in some ways, I get that train of thought. But what it misses is that a rejection of Jesus is that big a deal to God. Like, that's a sin beyond our ability to comprehend. That this person, that that God himself, Jesus, that God loves so much that someone would reject him. Man, God takes people who reject Jesus, and then he allows them to go to hell, a place permanently separated from him, permanently separated from Jesus, whom they have rejected forever. And sometimes I I think, well, well, that's not fair. Here's the thing. When God is God and I'm not, so he gets to decide what's fair and what's just. And two, we operate from a limited understanding. I mean, we don't see sin the way God sees sin. Warren Wearsby once said this quote, said that if we once saw sin the way God sees sin, we would know why a place such as hell exists. And the rejection of Jesus is that big a deal. And we have the opportunity to follow him. We'll talk about that. But those who choose to reject Jesus are permanently separated from him and they're judged according to their deeds, right? It says that there's books that open up. I don't know if these are physical books, if these are literal books, if, if these are, I mean, if it's on a Kindle, I don't, I don't know. But here's the thing. What I do know is that people have the opportunity to be judged based on how they lived. When I was growing up, I loved the idea of being judged based on my works because I thought, well, if I can be good enough, then I'll get what I want from my parents or friends or teachers, then later on coworkers. I wanted to be judged based on how I lived. I thought that was fair. We don't want to be judged based on how we live. The standard's perfection. God is a perfect God. The standard's perfection, and we cannot meet it. Let's just be honest. None of us can meet that. We know that. The standard's perfection, we all miss it. And that is the standard. So we have the opportunity to be judged based on how we live, and that will not be enough. Or, something mentioned is called the book of life. Sometimes it's all called the Lamb's Book of Life. This is a different book. It says that names are written in this book based on if someone has chosen to follow Jesus, if they've surrendered to him. Here's what that means. 
means instead of trying to earn our way to God by being good enough, being judged by our efforts, by our merits, instead of that, we believe that Jesus came, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death he didn't deserve, that he's God, that he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that we're going to do our best to follow him. It doesn't mean perfection, but it means genuinely loving and following Jesus. At the final judgment, one of two things is happening. Either someone is judged based on their efforts, and then they will spend forever in a real place called hell, and hell is real, indescribably awful, and forever. Or, someone is not judged based on their efforts, but based on what Jesus did on the cross, and they will spend forever in a place called heaven, which is real, indescribably amazing, and forever. To the standards perfection, I can't measure up. And respectfully, you can't either. We can't. The good news, the gospel, is that instead of us trying to earn our salvation, instead of us trying to earn our way to God, our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life when we believe. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Let's throw it on the screen. It says this. God saved you by his grace, not by our efforts, when we were good enough, no, when you believed. When we believe that Jesus is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. When we say, God, I can't get to you, but instead of me trying to earn my way to you, I'm going to follow you. Thank you for dying for me, right? When we admit that we're a sinner, we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We confess our sins. When we follow Jesus, right, when we believed, and we and you, we can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done so that none of us can boast about it. Let's just leave that here for a second. We cannot earn our salvation. We don't have to. Our efforts to earn our way to God lead us straight to hell. But our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We get to spend forever with God when we believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died for us, he rose again, and we want to follow him. Massive difference. I'm asking you, I'm begging you. Hell is real, indescribably awful, and forever. Heaven is real, indescribably amazing, and forever. And the determining factor in which way we go is what we do with Jesus. We have the opportunity to surrender to him or stand against him, but there is no middle ground, and ignoring him is standing against him. So if you want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, to make that surrender, let's talk after this. Myself and some friends will be down here. We would love to talk with you. But we have the opportunity to surrender to Jesus right now or stand against him. There's not a third option. Ignoring is standing against Let's throw our final timeline up one more time. So let's throw that timeline back. All right. We have a final battle and a final judgment. And that final judgment is full of hope for those who have chosen to follow Jesus. See, if someone has chosen to follow Jesus, from right here on, it is nothing but good. From right here on, if someone is, we're here, if you choose to follow Jesus, there is no reason to fear any of this. There is incredible hope, not because we were good enough, but because God, in his grace, Saves us. Tribulation, don't need to worry about it. We get to be with Jesus. Christ's second coming, we get to be with Jesus. We get to see this happen. It talked about an army dressed in white on white horses. That's actually people have chosen to follow Jesus. Like, we will get to be with him. We're not going to do anything, but we will get to see him in all his glory and all his power. A thousand years, get to be with Jesus. Final battle, part two, we get to be with Jesus. Final judgment, we get to be with Jesus. And then there's something called the new heaven and new earth and eternal hell. And that is determined based on final judgment. But if we have chosen to follow Jesus, we don't need to be afraid of that. 
First John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. We do not have to be afraid of that. The Bible says that God is making all things new. And there's going to be a time when the earth is either renovated so significantly that it is new or God makes a brand new earth. I don't know the details. Adam's going to talk about some of this next week. But there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And from here forever, we get to be with Jesus. Heaven is real, indescribably amazing, and forever. So if you have chosen to follow Jesus and you're hearing these things about a final battle and a final judgment and it feels big and it feels intimidating and it feels scary, hey, I get it, but it's only good. And if you've not made that decision to follow Jesus, you have time today to change that. So with all of this in mind, knowing that there is a final battle and a final judgment, like what, what do we do today? We've got, got three things for us to do. We want to get on the right side. We want to get the right attitude. We want to get others to come with you. There's the first one. And get on the right side. This is not some pop quiz that's a surprise out of left field. We know there will be a final battle, and we know who wins. We know there will be a final judgment, and we know how that judgment goes. Is did you surrender to Jesus or did you reject him? And then we know that the judgment then lasts forever. It's not a surprise. It's not a trick. What it takes is humility, that we would choose to follow Jesus. So get on the right side. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've done this. Don't worry about it. But if you're on the fence, if you're watching, if you're in the room, I'm begging you. Hell is real, indescribably awful and forever. Heaven is real, indescribably amazing and forever. Get on the right side. And then get the right attitude. Because for followers of Jesus, there is only hope. There's a point where there is no more pain, no more death, no more destruction, no more fear. A time where there is no more conflict, and it is only good. And we get to be with Jesus, and it will be better than we can possibly imagine. So our response to all of this should not be fear. It's bigger than us, yeah. But it doesn't have to make us afraid. Instead, we can have hope in it. And finally, get others to come with you. This isn't your stereotypical, get a friend to come to church. Yeah, do that. But here's why. Because I have friends, so do you, that if we all died tonight, they would spend eternity separated from God in a real place called hell, and I don't want that for them. As you think about people in your life, you don't want that for them either. Something we say here is that we want to do whatever it takes to reach our community for Christ. And the reason we say that is because we want people to get to spend forever with Jesus. So get on the right side, get the right attitude, get others to come with you. I'd like to pray for us. God, we are not able to earn our way to you. And you loved us so much that you knew that and you made a way for us to have a relationship with you that starts now and lasts forever. You love us and you are a God of perfect justice. And so right now you are patient and you are giving us an opportunity to turn to you. And because you are just, you will also say someday no more. And you'll put an end to all that's evil in this world. We want to thank you right now for being a God that is full of mercy and thank you for being a God that is full of justice. We love you. Would you help us to love you more? We trust you. Would you help us to trust you more? Would you help us to follow you now and forever? Amen.